security person that I hired stopped me and said, when says you can't come in? I said, what are you talking about? Jose? It's like, you don't work here anymore. And I thought it was a joke. And then when I saw that he was almost crying, I realized it wasn't a joke and I couldn't believe it. And I went from not having a penny to turning down multi-million dollar offers to acquire the company to not having a penny again. I was devastated. Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Berger. Today, I sat down with Wences Casares, who went from a sheep farm in Patagonia, Argentina, hundreds of miles away from the nearest town, to later become one of Latin America's leading entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley's preeminent Bitcoin and fintech gurus. Our internship with Wences begins now. Let's start with some context about you. You're a successful technology and financial entrepreneur, an investor. You're currently the CEO of Bitcoin Wallet Zappo. And among other projects, you sit on the board of PayPal. You're also a world-renowned advocate for cryptocurrency. Can you just talk a little bit about your job and what you do on a day-to-day basis? My day-to-day job is running Zappo, which is a Bitcoin wallet. And we're very focused on emerging markets. We have customers in 220 countries. We are a remote organization. We are 270 people who all work from home in 60 different countries. And running that organization is my day-to-day job. Outside of that, I'm on the board of PayPal. I'm on the board of Libra. My entire career, I've been in financial services technology. And why did you get into financial systems? And what is the appeal to Bitcoin? And like, why is that what you've built your life around, kind of? I grew up in a sheep ranch in Patagonia. And growing up, I saw my family lose all their savings three times. Every time it was because of something the government did or the banks did or both. First time it was because of a big, enormous devaluation, the biggest one in Argentina's history to this day. Several years later, when they were recovered from that, they lost all of their savings again because of a enormous hyperinflation. And the last time was when many years later they recovered and again, they lost all their savings because the government took all the bank deposits. And my memory from that is not a, an economic or financial memory. I was too young to think in those terms. My memory of that is remember my mom angry and crying and my parents fighting and all of the society around us collapsing, being scared. And remembering how unfair it felt that, that the people who had nothing suffered a lot more than the people who had something. If you could have, you put your savings and you could buy it at a little house you could rent it or if you could have enough money to have a, an account in another country or or to buy dollars you were protected but if you couldn't have access to any of that you lost everything every time so when i first fell in love with the internet i thought the internet was going to fix all of the world's problems in a very romantic way i was very naive and i thought that one of the problems i was going to fix it was going to be this problem i was wrong i think it hasn't fixed them yet 30 years after, I hasn't yet fixed that. But I think that when, when I saw Bitcoin, it's the first thing that gave me hope that what I saw the internet do for information, Bitcoin may do for money and make money much more democratic and accessible than it is today. If it happens, it will take 10, 20, 30 years. It's not something that's going to happen quickly. Um, Bitcoin is very, very new. It's like a baby, right? It has a long way to go and it could fail. But to imagine a Nothing would make me prouder than to be able to tell one day my grandkids that I was part of a generation that worked to make 
Bitcoin succeed so people don't have to go through what I saw my family go through. Now that we kind of know who you are and what drives you in a way, let's talk about the story of how you got to this place. So as you mentioned, you were born on a small sheep ranch in Patagonia. You had three younger siblings and you went through serious economic struggles. Can you just explain life? I grew up in a sheep ranch in the middle of Patagonia. My parents are to this day sheep ranchers there. Our closest neighbor is 20 kilometers away. Closest town is 100 miles away and it's just a police station and a market. So you're very isolated. Most days you don't see anyone else other than your family. When someone does show up, it's quite an event. It's fun. It's more exciting than going to the movies in a town when someone comes by. And growing up there was mostly quite happy. I didn't know any, anything else, right? So a few friends of mine from California who have gone to the ranch think, oh my God, it must be tough to grow up here. And it's hard for me to explain to them that if you don't know any better, it's quite a nice place to grow up. And it's quite free and fun. And so I, I love growing up there. When I was seven years old, and my mom moved to a town 300 kilometers away for me to be able to go to school. And I went to, to school in that town. When I was 17 years old, I got a Rotary Exchange scholarship to go to the U.S. as an exchange student in a gap year. And that in, in to a small town in Western Pennsylvania uh, called Washington, Pennsylvania. And that changed my life. That's where I learned to speak English and to love America. And that, that was really a very transformational year. So I do want to talk about your Rotary Club experience, but I still want to get a little bit more context for kind of your family life at home. When you were living on the ranch, what did you kind of do to fill your time? I wasn't bored ever in the ranch. I was mostly with my father all day and there's always things to do in a ranch. My father is always working and I was always helping. When he's not digging a trench, he's loading firewood in a truck. Or when he's not loading firewood in a truck, he's unloading bales of hay. Or when you know you have to do a cattle run or work something with a horse. There's, there, it's a lot busier than you would imagine the life in a ranch, especially when there's sort of the kind of ranch where the family runs the ranch. So I, I don't remember being bored and and I remember having fun. All of those things are fun. It's fun to work side by side with your father. Sometimes it's tough, but most of the time it's also fun. And what did you learn from this experience of running a family ranch? I never really ran the family ranch. I think I would be very bad at running a ranch. Uh, I know for a fact, actually, I'm pretty bad at running a ranch. But I think I, by working so close to my father, I got his work ethic. He's always working, never too scared of doing any kind of job, even some jobs that when you think about them before you start, it seems impossible or seems too long or too much work for too long a period of time. And my father is a work machine and he taught me that working by his side at the ranch. With the rest of your family, what was relationships like, especially as kind of an older brother? It's super, you know, because we all grew up in the ranch, it's very close together. That's Everybody you have, there's no one else. My father is very strong and demanding. My mom is super sweet and caring. It's a good balance between the two of them. It takes my mom to survive my dad. And my mom is also remarkably entrepreneurial, which was very strange. Would be strange today in Patagonia, even more strange back then from a woman in Patagonia. She would keep part of the wool production of the ranch and turn it into threaded wool and then sweaters and we would 
go around Patagonia selling those to and the touristic centers of Patagonia, selling those to, to, to tourists. And I helped my mom just with anything she needed with that business, carrying the sweaters, doing the accounting. And she got me the bug of, of business, really, of being an entrepreneur. She taught me. She, she, she gave me that little bag that says, this is so fun. Unfortunately, in Catholic tradition, all throughout Latin America, it's implicitly wrong to want to be rich. It's implicitly wrong to want to make money. And I think sort of in the, somehow in the, in the Catholic values, that's very explicitly, but quite strongly, implicitly said. And I think that without realizing, my mom inoculated me against that by making it fun. You know, it was like a game. Mm -hmm. And the numbers were the score. And so she made me an entrepreneur and to be wanna to wanna be a, like her. And I'm very close to all my three siblings, two sisters and a brother. Back then, the difference in age mattered a lot, even though we are all very close one year apart. Back then the difference in age mattered more than today. So I was always we were not as close as we are today, even though we were always together. It wasn't the nice relationship we have today. I was always bossing them around, bullying them, pushing them around. Before we move to the Rotary Club experience that you mentioned a second ago, do you have any other stories from your experience at home that you really feel like mark who you are as a person today or kind of played a big role in your experience as a child? It's a very tough life. But if you don't know any better, you don't even know that it's tough. And there's something great about that, right? That then you leave and everything seems easier. <laughs> It's like learning to run marathons in mud up to your knees. And all of a sudden say, you can run without mud. And it's like, oh my God, this is heaven. So I, I love growing up in the ranch. And it'd be hard to go back to do that now that I know. But back then it was fun. And it was fun not knowing that it's, it's a tough life. So let's talk specifically about your high school experience and the Rotary Club experience. You moved 300 miles away from home to go to high school. I mean, what was it like to have your mom take on that experience for you? It was hard. I was never very happy when we moved to town, especially not at the beginning. Then I learned to manage, but I would say I never really adapted to life in town. I was always relatively unhappy. For one, you know, when I moved there, I was seven years old and I felt like everybody already had friends. All the, as I like to say, it's all the soccer teams were already made and I never learned to play soccer. It's very important. I say that as an example, but, but you know, it's true that in Argentina, if you don't play soccer, it's very hard to have a social life. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's why when my parents exposed me to computers, I hid there. You know, I wasn't very popular in high school. I was just relatively unhappy in general. And I either liked the outdoors alone or with a friend or two uh, or the computer. And the computer was a lot of fun. I could get lost there. And, I went on to, to, to change my life. My father got into ham radio because it's a way to communicate from the ranch that is very isolated. And when he learned to build his own radios, because it was cheaper than buying the radios were expensive. And then he learned about transistors and started playing with transistors and build computer. I think today we'll call it more like a calculator. And then he got into computers and he taught me how to program them. And then that went on to, to change my life. So I was most miserable at school. And in general, I was happiest in the computer or outside. And fortunately, there was a lot of opportunities to be on the computer or outside. I, to this day, I, I think I'm so glad that my parents never chose 
or thought of restricting my computer time the way I we do with our kids today because I don't think I think my life would be very different if they had chosen to restrict my computer time. I mean, it's different. It is absolutely different. You're right about that. There was no internet, so the computer was a, a dead end, right? Yeah. Where more 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 imagination to have fun with it. So, in high school, you did really well, and you got this Rotary Club scholarship, and you went to Pennsylvania. I didn't do really well in high school. Huh? I had to work a lot for the for the scholarship separately. But I was a mediocre. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't I wasn't the best student by a long shot. No, I wasn't the second or the third best student. I was. I managed, but I wasn't great. So like today, just like today. So then, how did you get the the Rotary Club scholarship? It had a separate process. I don't know if they require me to send my my grades and all that, but they did a lot of interviews and tests and. And that part I really applied myself to. I really wanted to come to the U.S. I met a exchange student who was living in a small little town. She told me about it, and she would tell the stories of the U.S. My father was also subscribed to Time and National Geographic and a few magazines. And when you read those magazines from Patagonia, having never left, it's like science fiction. You can't believe that there's that world out there. So I really, really wanted to live, and I applied myself as hard as I could to get the scholarship. Can you talk about your experience in Washington? I know you've, you've said to me how that's changed, but can you just kind of tell the story of how that changed your life? I think it changed my life in many ways, but I highly recommend having a gap year between high school and college, not only for because of what, I did to, what it did to me, but I come into contact with other people who tell me the same, that, that they did a gap year and it had the same effect, which I think it helps you mature really quickly. You learn a lot about yourself. Not so important where you go. It's important that it's a year. It's the first time you're away from the family. It's important that you're in a place that is relatively uncomfortable. The language, the customs, that you don't have all of the family support, familiarity that made you comfortable before. So when you go to college, you have a huge advantage, which is you've learned a lot about yourself, what you want, what you don't want. And, and since sometimes college is a great experience that most of us waste. Right? And a Gabier can help make a lot more out of that. In my case, on top of that, it taught me English, to learn to, to speak English. It, it really taught me to love this country. I just couldn't believe a lot of the things I saw here coming from just how society works, how people trust the system, how people can focus in doing the things they want and not worry about bad surprises, just how, how entrepreneurial and how free it, it felt to me. So it wasn't a happy year. Yeah, I don't want to give you a wrong impression. It was tough because I really missed my family. I really, it was the first time I felt lonely. I felt very inadequate. I felt way outside of my comfort zone. It was a small town. People were, you know, like you, people were super nice the first week I was there because I was like a new kid in town. But after that, that washed off and, and people were quite hard on on a foreigner. And then little silly things, you know, I always like to tell the story that I was one day walking in the mall with a girlfriend. We were holding hands. That's what you do there if you have a girlfriend. Back then, you go to the mall and you hold hands. And she asked me, he said, when, says, when was the last time you took a shower? And I thought about it and I said, the day before yesterday. Or, or maybe the day before that, I don't remember very well. And she stopped and turned and looked at me and said, when is here in America, we take a shower every day. 
I'm like, really? Wow. <laughs> but, you know, live, you learn. <laughs> do you take a shower every day now? <laughs> I know. They make me. The hair doesn't look like it. Not today. Later today. <laughs> After I exercise. Oh, okay. Are there any other stories or kind of takeaways that you had from that experience? Anything major? It was very formative. And coming with this bug that my mom had given me about business and about being an entrepreneur, is all of a sudden I felt like I was in the entrepreneur mecca. I was working at a place that, like a, a shop in town that did photocopies, and it was acquired by Kinkos. And I get to learn. First, I was impressed with the story of the local entrepreneur who had, who had hired me to just do the copies. And then I learned the story of King. I just couldn't believe those stories are not common. Or back then, they were not common in Latin America. And it was super inspiring to, to see that. And so to, to me, it was transformational at many levels. Most important of all, the, the, how it helped me mature more quickly and know what I wanted, but also to fall in love with America. So after you fell in love with America, you went back to Argentina to study at the University of San Andreas to try and get a degree in business administration. Why'd you go back? I really wanted to study here and I applied to college and I got into some colleges, but I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford it. And uh, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't get a scholarship. So it was like a defeat. I felt defeated in going back. I really wanted to stay and I couldn't. Buenos Aires is 2000 kilometers away from the town where I grew up and it felt a world away. Back then, we would mostly go back and forth by bus, and it was a, almost a two-day trip. It wasn't the U.S., but it wasn't home either. And life there was tough. It's a big city with no money. It was, in some ways, those years were the most, the ones I remember with the most, in the most romantic way, but also they were the toughest. We, we were living with my two sisters. You all moved there. Yeah, we all moved there. When I went back, I first was by myself. But it, next year, my sister Azul came, and my, the next year, Maria. We lived in a, in a one-bedroom apartment that was smaller than this. And uh, we had 150 bucks a month to live on. And where did you get the 150 bucks? My parents. And they also paid the rent. They paid the colleges. But what was left for us to, to spend to live on was 150 bucks. And my sister Azul managed because we all trusted her. She did magic with that. We would eat in the apartment at night, sometimes in the morning, some, some breakfast, but not during the day. And every night, my sisters would cook, especially Azul, some pasta or some rice. And once a month, when we'd receive the money, she would throw in some meat of some kind, and that was a celebration. I really am not complaining. I'm not trying to give pity. I, have, I remember that with a lot of um, melancholy. It was a great time. It was tough, but it was a great time. Also, the right time in life to kind of be doing that. Um, I applied to San Andres, which is considered the best school in the country for business and economics and other things like that. Uh, I, it's private; you have to pay. It has an expensive tuition. When I first applied, I got in, but but I couldn't but I didn't get a scholarship and I couldn't afford it. I had to apply again. And the second time I got in with a full scholarship of which they give one a year. How did you deal with like failing to get into school and knowing that you had to apply again? 
No, or not failing to get into school, but not being able to afford. I was helping my parents move in town, and I found a letter that my father sent. I applied, and was wait. I was in Buenos Aires waiting for the answer, and the school sent by mail the answer to the town. So my parents received your parents, and my father sent a letter that I didn't know until three years later. He sent a letter to the school saying, I will let Wences know that he got in without the scholarship. He's probably going to apply again. Please do me a favor. And if he doesn't get a full scholarship, tell him he didn't get in because I'm embarrassed to tell him you got in, but we cannot afford it. So I applied again, and this time I got the scholarship. I prepared a ton, but it was a little bit of luck. I was so, so, so happy. Yeah. I, even happier than when I got the Rotary Scholarship. I don't believe Because the first, you know, when, no, you don't know because you're too young, but it, when I look back, I think moments where you say your life changed for good, that's one that comes to mind. It's like, wow, I got in. So I was very excited to go to school. So you got into the school, but you didn't finish. No. You only stayed for three years. So before we get to leaving, was there anything in the experience that, like attending the school that really helped you? Yeah. One of those moments? Yeah. I mean, I learned the school is a great school, great professors, great mentors, great friends that I have to this day. It was very formative. One day I was in the student council. They had sent, Comdex was a very big computer expo at the time. And Comdex sent a letter with free passes to Comdex. So someone said, hey, we got these passes. Who wants them? Everyone says, you are an nerd. Do you want them? Yeah, I would love them. So they gave me three passes. So I go home and I tell my sisters, Sula Maria, hey, I got these passes to come. Let's keep school tomorrow. Let's go to computer. They are nerds like me. So we went. We were walking. It's like a huge warehouse full of stands, full of collecting brochures and just and all of a sudden, my sister Maria comes and says, come, come, look at this. And there was a computer in the corner, in the stand, with a Unix screen. I said, look, this computer is connected to the world. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Yes, look. And she started chatting on IRC with people in Taiwan, people in Israel. People in the US, like, wow. And then we would go for, there was no net browser at the time. So it was all character-based, right? Unix. Mm-hmm. We couldn't believe it. We spent the rest of the day, and they kicked us out at night when they had to go. So the next, we, we walked home, it was a long, instead of taking the bus, we just talking and talking. We were so excited. And we decided to skip school every day until it closed. And we were all glued to the computer and nobody was paying attention. And then we find out, how can we get that at home? And in Argentina, it wasn't available yet. So telecommunications have been recently privatized. They had given the north of the country to one company from Italy, the south of the country to another country, company from Spain. And then there are some things that don't fit north or south. Like, for example, who does long distance or who does data? And so they gave it to a joint venture of Spanish and Italians, 50-50. It was a nightmare. Nobody, like a really bad idea. And imagine 50% Italian, 50% Spanish. They never agree on anything. There was no way to resolve a 50-50 dispute. And this company had the only connection to the internet in Argentina by law. So we contacted them and they told us, you know, they operate like any big company. You have to send a purchase order. Mm-hmm. And one day they showed up a crew that was breaking the sidewalk with lying some stuff and they connected us. And they would expect us to pay 30 days. Great, because we didn't have any money. 
And we started figuring out how to sell that. And we ordered a bunch of telephone lines and got computers. It was super amateur, but we eventually figured out how to start reselling internet access. At the beginning, our motive wasn't really to profit. It was more we wanted to have internet at home, which we did. And we were glued to that thing all day. Finding a way to pay for the computer. Exactly. To pay for the access and the computer and all the circuits. And then is that how you got into developing? I mean, look. That was Internet Argentina. Yeah, yeah Internet Argentina. Yeah, that turned into Internet Argentina. And that also made me fall in love with the internet forever. And from there, you you dropped out of school because of that? No, not at that point. I began to do less school. I took a semester off, but I didn't drop out permanently. I went back. And so why did you go back? I really wanted to finish. I thought I could. In Argentina, it's more common than here that people work through college, mostly because you have to pay expenses, etc. And if you wanted to finish, why didn't you finish? It's a long story, but the short version is that after that company, I started another one that was too demanding and I just couldn't. That company was Patagon? And can you explain the process of how you started that company? What kind of inspired you to move along from Internet Argentina and move on to the next company? We lived in downtown Buenos Aires. Spend a lot of time in buses. This is the primary method of public transportation, buses and trains, with my sisters. And we talked a lot. And we always liked to talk about my grandfather, who we all adored. He had long passed. And a favorite theme of conversation is how lucky he was that he got to go to Patagonia when there were no roads, no fences. He had to carry a gun, there was no police, and everything was to be discovered and done. And how unlucky we were that we were living in a place where there was nothing to be discovered and everything was done. So quickly became a parent in a, in a joke way, pretty much, but that, that this was our, our Patagonia. What Patagonia, what going to Patagonia was for my grandfather, the internet was for us. It was everything to be discovered, new, exciting. Except you didn't have to carry a gun to walk around the internet. <laughs> sort of. You'd be surprised. Unfortunately, I lost that company. You know, I went from not having any money to feeling like that company was doing really well. The company Paragon? No. Internet. Okay. And losing it, it's a long story, but basically I raised money from someone who was giving me, uh, who was a very well-known businessman who had cable TV businesses. And this person would give me money in cash whenever I needed. And I had proposed a deal by which and this person would keep 100% of the company. I could keep the management. And if I hit certain milestones, I would get 15% of the company. And this person never asked me for any documents that represented that I had accepted all that cash. So I was very moved by the trust. This person was giving me, in the end, they were giving me $700,000 that I invested into the company, trusting that I was going to honor that because I could say, no, I don't know this person, just keep the company. So one day, he told me to go to his lawyers. So after work, I went to his lawyers. I was with my girlfriend. And the lawyer said, send me some documents for me to sign. And I look at the documents and they are documents that say that I'm giving him 100% of the company. And I asked his lawyers, where are the documents that say that I keep the management and that if I hit certain milestones, 15% of the company is mine. And the lawyers say that we're going to do those documents next week. My girlfriend told me, why don't you sign them all together next week? And I said, no, because this person trusts me a lot. I don't want to show this trust. This, I want to be like they were with me. I want to be with them. I want to show that I trust them. And I signed those documents. And the next day, when I was going to walk into the building that I created of my office, 
security person that I hired stopped me and said, when says you can't come in? I said, what are you talking about, Jose? It's like, you don't work here anymore. And I thought it was a joke. And then when I saw that he was almost crying, I realized it wasn't a joke and I couldn't believe it. And I went from not having a penny to turning down multi-million dollar offers to acquire the company to not having a penny again. I was devastated. On top of that, you know, when it rains, it pours. My girlfriend of four years decided to leave me. And the university said that if I didn't get more serious with my grades, I had to leave. So it was a very, very bad period. But that led me to to double down and say, no, I think the internet's going to change the world. The problem that I'm most passionate about is the financial issues for people who have nothing. And I started to stay a, a financial services company and to leave university, to ask my two sisters to leave university and to start Patagon. And then in what way did you really double down? Like, how did you take advantage of the failure? Double down in that I left the school, for example, and they made it clear that I couldn't come back. And that felt like leaving a safety net because if I finish San Andres, I have a pretty, not cushy, but well delineated role I can follow. If you you diploma of San Andres, you're going to work in a very good multinational, then you can go do an MBA, then you can work for investment banking and consulting. That's what everybody who went there does, and they do pretty well. So that was like leaving San Andres without a chance to come back was like eliminating a safety net, making it so these things had to work. Um, Also, I remember my father was coming to visit. He came once a year, twice a year to Buenos Aires, and we were all very respectful, almost scared of my father. And my sister said, look, we've agreed to leave college, to drop out of college, to work with you on this thing, but father is your problem, not ours, right? So when he comes, you tell him. Okay, and I practice, practice, practice in front of the mirror. And they said, and please don't do it near us, taking far away. <laughs> so I remember when far away, had a conversation with my father, I said, look, I wanna do this. So I wanna leave the school, Azula Maria too. It was very quiet, he asked a number of questions and he said nothing. He said, I need to talk to your mom. And the next day he said, I talked to your mom and we're okay. You guys are grown-ups now. You have to learn to make your own decisions and fully support you. We just don't want this to be done in a childish or responsible way. If you guys do this, do it well. And that meant the world, both things. Having, I don't think I could have done it without my mom and my dad's support. It was, it was too much. I don't know how to say it, but it would have been too much risk. But also that line of, you know, this is not a game. You're not a kid anymore. You're right. And that helped immensely. Um, and would you say that that's both of those kind of ideas or mentality that you live with to this day, that everything you do is not a game, you have to do it right, but also that you need to let go of the safety net to kind of do what needs to be done? Yeah, that's harder and harder over time, right? Because today I do have a safety net, not only financially, but also I, I think that just even the track record is a little bit of a safety net, or my friends are a little bit of a safety net, right? So it's it would be very hard to replicate that kind of truly no safety net, right? Where nobody knows you, you know nobody, you have no track record, you have no nothing. So over time, you have more things. But you have to make the safety net on your own. Yeah. You can't use yeah. one that's given to you. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> Even to this day, I find myself doing something uh, not as well as I know it should be done and catching sometimes it's something that I did for a short period of time and sometimes I'll catch myself doing something for a long period of time that I I know that should not be done that way should be and and and, and that image comes to mind of 
know, if you're going to do something, do it well or don't do it. So during your experience of building Patagon, you made it the uh, leading comprehensive internet financial service in all of Latin America. And then you sold it for $750 million to um, Banco Santander. Yeah. During that experience, what really helped you make the company so successful? My memory of those few years is very blurry. It's like a whirlwind. A lot of things happened very, very quickly. And we were very lucky with the timing. That was the dot-com craziness. That helped a lot. I don't think that would have happened without the dot-com craziness. And we were very young, very inexperienced, and very aggressive. So we were able to do things faster, open more countries more quickly, grow faster than other people, partly because we, we were reckless, because we were kids. You know? And I had never really left Argentina other than to go to the U.S. as an exchange student. And all of a sudden, we were all over Latin America acquiring companies, opening office, hiring people, firing people. It was very formative. But I remember it as a blur of crazy activity. And there was an enormous dose of luck without which it would not have worked, including that we were lucky to sell the company before the dot-com bubble burst. And if you could say from that whirlwind, you took away one or two things, what would they be? A lot of things, tons of things. But the one that comes to mind somewhat selfishly, because it comes to me almost every week, is I raise money from venture capitalists and from banks and from Microsoft and Goldman Sachs and George Soros. The first time I raised institutional money. And these institutional investors were sitting on my board. And in the first time I go to New York for my first board meeting, I never had a board meeting before. I've read about them. I've seen them in movies, but I don't really know what to expect. I'm 23 or 24. The sheep farmer from Patagonia running a million dollar board meeting. And uh, I just raised $4 million. When I raised the money, we were in bad shape. I was so glad we raised the money. And I really wanted to win Brazil because Brazil is more than 60% of the market in all of Latin America. So I didn't want to, and I have found, so I have found the company I wanted to acquire. So I present to the board and I say, I would like to acquire this company in Brazil. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how you're supposed to do this with a board. You know, what do you ask for approval? What do you know? Do you vote? I have no idea what it is. And they say, well, how much is it? Four million dollars. person from Chase says, but don't you only have $4 million in the bank that we just gave you? Yeah. That's why I want to, because I have them, I use them for the account. Yeah, but you were already late with payroll and if you spend that money, how do you, for you? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I will, well, I'll figure out, but you know, if, if I don't use the money to acquire the company in Brazil, we won't be in Brazil and we won't win. Um, that company was Banco Lemon, right? No, no, that was later. Okay. It was a company called NetTrade, which was the largest one in Brazil, doing the same thing. And um, eventually, no, that's not true. NetTrade was later. This was just to acquire a, a license, a company that had a little bit of a business, but the big asset to us was that they had a seat in the South Paulo Stock Exchange. So basically, I kept saying, I want to do this, and the board members kept saying, you're crazy. So all of a sudden, I look at them and say, look, I said, I've never been to a board meeting. What do we do? We vote. And Fred Wilson who is a remarkable venture capitalist. He was getting started back then, but already remarkable. Uh, looked at me and said, look, Wences, this is how it works. No, we're not going to vote. The only thing that the board does is we listen to you and we ask you questions. It's your duty to show that you're listening to our questions and to answer those questions in a, a way that show us that 
you're listening and you're being intellectually honest. And then you go out and you do whatever you think is best. And it better works because the other thing we do is we fire you. Basically, the board hires and fires you, but we won't tell you what to do. So go do whatever you want and I hope it works. And it was super bland, but sort of it reminded me of my father and I can work with that. You know? So I went and I did acquisition and we had to do crazy things to make it work, but we won. And that was a big lesson, which is don't expect people to tell you what to do. Very hard, right? Because if I do something I don't believe in because the board tells me and it doesn't work, who's accountable, the board or me? The company fails and the sequences, you fail. No, I don't fail. I did what you guys told me. It's very hard. And then you have to own it. You know, if you fail, the board says, once you're out, you screwed up. That's okay. That was one, one big lesson. And, and another one was that this board kept telling me that we had to hire gray hair. Gray hair. They kept saying gray hair, gray hair. It was a sort of common in the dot-com bubble to say that because they were scared that we were so young and we had all of these financial services institutions all over Latin America, they were scared that our inexperience could make, make us do make mistakes. And I think I paid too much attention to that. I think that, and I learned the hard way that there is a role in business in a startup for experienced managers who have done it before and know what they're doing. But there's also a role for, for founders, for people who have vision, who understand the technology and have a strong conviction about where things are going and what needs to be done. And that there has to be a good interplay between those two. If you have entrepreneurs with vision and nothing else running amok, you're going to crash. But if you only have executives just managing and running amok, you're also going to crash. You have to have a good, healthy balance between those two. So after your success at Patagon, you, tell me if I'm wrong, it might not have been after this one, but took three years and you sailed around the world. And before that experience, did you meet your wife or during that experience, did you meet your wife? So I was told that I need to ask you the story of how you met your wife. There's a New York nonprofit called Endeavor that changed my life. They look for entrepreneurs in emerging markets. They search and then select a few. And those few that they select, they help with advice and access to mentors and to access to people. Not capital back then. Connections. Connections. Connections, know-how, right? I, I'm a little lost in marketing. They introduced it to the chief marketing officer of Coca-Cola. Hey, I'm a little lost with recruiting. And they introduced it to great people who really know what they're doing in recruiting. And they send the Harvard MBA to work for me for the summer for free to help me with the business plan and with the fundraise. They really changed my life and make, you know, I would not have done well if it weren't for the help. So they, I tried to help them as much as I can. And they asked me, I was living in Europe at the time. We were expanding down to Europe and, and they asked me to come to New York for a fundraiser. Um, so I fly to, from Frankfurt, I believe, to New York. I go from the airport straight to this fundraiser in the Goldman Sachs building that they used to have in Broad, Broad Street at the top floor. And when I open the door, if I close my eyes, I can see her. It's like this angel is opening doors. A beautiful, sweet, gorgeous girl. And she looks at me and she says, uh, how may I help you? And no, she looks at me upside, like up and down. And she said, sorry, this event is by invitation only. And she slammed the door in my face. And I opened the door and I looked at her and said, my name is Wences Casares. I'm the guest speaker. Said, Wait here. I don't have you in my list. And then I did the best speech of my life, just trying to impress her. I didn't master the quarter to go up to her that day, but I did call my mom. They had recently set up a satellite phone in the ranch. I called my mom from the hotel. She was sleeping. And I said, mom, I'm calling to let you know that I met the woman I'm going to marry. 
And my mom says, oh, my God, what is this? I can't believe it. Because, you know, you don't tell me anything. But my, your, your, your sisters tell me. And it's such a disaster. I was so worried for you, all these girls in all these places. And if you're not introducing them to me, there must be a reason. And I know why. It's like, I'm so worried for you. And what's her name? I'm like, I don't know. And she hung up on me. <laughs> she hung up on me and she wouldn't pick up again. So. That was a good story. So now you and your wife are together and you go and you sail around the world. Can you talk about this experience and kind of the highlights, the turning points, the down parts? Yeah. It's to say the most difficult thing I've done, probably the one I'm proudest of too. When I was a kid, someone who was visiting the ranch left a book for me called Dove, which is a true story. Robin Lee Graham, 15-year-old California kid who sails around the world in a 27-foot sailboat. And it's amazing. If you never left Patagonia, you're reading that book. You cannot believe it that a kid your age sailing around the world by himself meets a beautiful girl, the love of his life in Mauritius or some idyllic place like that. So I said, you know, when I can, I'm going to sail around the world. Of course, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to sail. I didn't know anything. I didn't know that I get seasick. But after I was a little burned out. More than a little, I was quite burned out after Patagon and we decided to get married with Belle and I started telling her about this dream that I had to sail around the world and she pushed me to really do it. And so we sold everything we had. We got this sailboat and started sailing. Dio was six months old when we moved to the boat. I think a year old when we started sailing because it took me six months to get the boat ready. And we went from Miami to the Panama Canal and then across the Pacific and Dio was born in New Zealand, and we sailed from there to Indonesia, Singapore, and India, to the Red Sea, Suez Canal, Mediterranean, and eventually back to Miami, three years. And when we arrived back to Miami, we were expecting Isadora. So basically, the kids all come from that trip. It's like a baby boom, but just one family. Yeah, there was no TV on the boat, so you just make babies. I mean, obviously, there were some... You, the whole thing was probably an incredible experience, but were there any times where you didn't know if you were going to make it? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I always had to tell Belle, I always felt like my main responsibility was to make sure Belle wasn't worried. So I think that the first step in that is for you not to worry. And I don't know if, I think that I lied to myself. So I had a line that I use very often, which is I will go, I will tell Belle, this is uncomfortable but it's not dangerous. I thought of had to relieve it too. Even though I think sometimes I knew that, you know, I was scared or I thought it was dangerous or I didn't know what we were doing. And sometimes it's the weather. Sometimes it's something breaks in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's that, you know, you're trying to fix a diesel engine of which you know nothing in the middle of a storm in the engine room and you're throwing up because of the diesel smell and, you know, you're trying to read the engine manual at the same time. I don't know. There are moments that are really bad and which you think, I wonder if we'll make it. I am always very distrustful of when things start well. I prefer when anything I'm doing starts not so well. One, because things can get better, but also because it reminds me of our first crossing. First big crossing, we had to big ocean. We crossed all the oceans in three years, you know, the Pacific, the Indian, Atlantic. Our first big crossing was the Pacific and I was scared about it. It's a big ocean to be in the middle of it with a little tiny boat with your wife and your kid. And it was amazing. Following winds, a very warm breeze on your skin, following seas, nice movement, day and day out, spinnaker up. And I said, oh my God, this is sailing around the world thing is going to be a piece of cake. 
never again make that mistake. So whenever things start like that, now I worry. Back then, I didn't know any better. We were in the middle of this crossing. I wake out, and I'm sitting at the helm. Oh, I'm not steering. Usually in the boat, the autopilot is steering. You only use, you only steer in and out of port, and that's it, because always you lose a person, right? And it's just us. So the boat is autopilot is steering, but I'm at, outside at the helm. And Belle comes from down below, and she looks at me and says, toilet's not working. That, when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, means go fix the toilet because you're not going to call a plumber. And so I go, and I look at the toilet. I had made the mistake in retrospect, you know, of upgrading our toilets to these fancy electric toilets instead of manual pumps. So I push the button, and I hear the pump. Yeah, and I can see it's not working. I push again. It's like getting stuck. Push, furious, many times. I was like, it doesn't go anywhere. So I leave the floorboards, you know, where you stand, and there's like this much space below, and all the cables and the pipes, everything goes there. And I get the manuals, and I try to figure out the, the cable, this pipe. And I get in there, and I crawl, and I get, I think I'm getting close to under where the toilet is, so I see this big pipe. That must be, that must be the one that comes from the toilet. And then there comes to a Y. And I'm, and when I hit it tuk, 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 before the Y, the division, it sounds full. Tuk, tuk, sounds full. And after, tuk, tuk, sounds empty. So I'm a genius. Eh? Something's stuck here. This must be where you, you, when you are in the middle of the ocean, you're allowed to send the toilet waste to the ocean. It's biodegradable. When you're near sh- uh, shore, you have to send it to a holding tank. This must be the, the valve, the why that that's one or the other. Okay. So I, I start, there is a, how do you think those things that tight that make the, the hoses, oh, that, that make it very tight, I guess. So I, I loosen it a little and I start, oh, a wrench. Not like a wrench, you know, when you have a hose that comes into something, there's a metallic thing around it that makes it stay tight. Okay, I know what you're talking about, but I can't uh, think of the name. And it's like a clamp. <laughs> I loosen the clamp. And I start pushing back, back, back. And the second I did it, I realized that it was a mistake, but it was too late. And it exploded. <laughs> I had long hair, beard, like all covered shit. <laughs> I made the biggest effort ever to not throw up. And I start, and it was disgusting. And I start walking out. My wife is now sitting at the helm. And when she sees me, she's like, back there. She saw me, she threw up. We had to stop. I had to jump in the ocean, back out, jump in the ocean, back out. It took us weeks to clean that part of the boat. It's a disaster. And that night, we had a satellite phone on the boat. And it was mostly for emergency, for us to call if something happened. We didn't really use it. And that night, Mickey, who you know, called me, my business partner. And I was on watch, so I was happy to receive a call. It never happened. Hey, Mickey, how are you? And Mickey says, let me tell you once I'm calling you because I had a shitty day. <laughs> You can't even let me tell you what I should do. Let's move on from that, kind of just wrap things up. After your trip, you moved to Silicon Valley. Why did you move here? Because I've always been a technology entrepreneur. And if you are a technology entrepreneur, not in Silicon Valley, you feel like you're not in the major leagues and you're always looking at the major leagues. I started coming to Silicon Valley in 1994. I was blown away with what I saw. And I forced myself to come at least every six months just to come for inspiration, even if I had nothing to do. And, and I would go into any company that I was looking up to and get inspired by them. And it really had a huge impact in getting me inspired. 
And I always dreamed of what would it be to play in the big leagues. Too. So I thought I was going to go to Silicon Valley to be there and play in the big leagues for a while to see if I could, if I could be good enough. And once I came here, I loved it. I loved the people. I feel like Silicon Valley is like Florence in the Renaissance. It's the center of the world, if you like this kind of thing. It's attracting you know, the best people from all over the world. And there's this very naive Californian-American attitude that the world can be changed and things can be fixed, improved and super meritocratic and there is like, like a special something special in the air here in the energy right all the people not only the people that attract entrepreneurs and investors but even if you see just what's going on in the arts and academia and non-profit it's a special part of the world and between that and the friends i made i said oh my god i i never want to leave here this is this is home and is that why you're trying to get your u.s citizenship right now just yes. My wife is American. My kids are American. I'm very proud and grateful for what America has done for me and my family. And I'd be very proud to be an American citizen. Yet you're still trying to raise your kids biculturally. Yeah. Can you explain why that's so valuable as a parent? I have to say that Bell has taught me a lot here. A few years ago, we bought a ranch in Patagonia, cattle ranch. And since we did that, my wife always wanted to go live there for a year for the kids to learn Spanish. And I thought that learning Spanish was valuable because, for example, my mom doesn't speak a lot of English and it would be meaningful for her and for my kids that they have a better communication with her grandmother. Right? So I refused for a few years, but eventually my wife made us all go to Patagonia and live there for a year. And they all learned Spanish quite well, but the big surprise to me was how great it felt that they also became a little bit bicultural. So they not only learned the language, but they made friends, really good friends. They learned to ride horses like little Indians. They learned to hunt and fish and work the cattle and do the things I did growing up. And I don't know how to explain it, William, but that feels very, I don't know, I have a strong connection with the kids because they yeah. share that with me. They will always be California kids. You cannot change that. But I love that they understand Patagonia. And I am proud that they're California kids. I love California. So before I wrap up, I'm just going to say some other things that you've kind of done are as Bank of Lemon that we mentioned. You also helped create Ling Nation, Lemon Wallet, and Nat Wanko Games. And then you also run Zappo. Are there any stories from creating those companies that are particularly relevant? No, sometimes... Um, someone like you who is young and talented and an aspiring entrepreneur will read in that long list of companies and will say, I want to be, I want to be a serial entrepreneur. I want to do a lot of companies. And I am sad to give that bad example because if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't do many companies. I would do one right. In my opinion, this is very subjective. Wanting to do many companies, wanting to be a serial entrepreneur is like saying, I want to get married many times. Well, don't get married. <laughs> it is painful to let go of a company. It's like letting go of a kid when he's six years old. I don't, know, I don't think anyone can do that. And a company needs your help to keep growing and it, it makes you grow, just like our kids make us grow as they grow. And entrepreneurs I admire have done one company really well, not many. So similarly, I hope I can do SAPO really well. And I wish I hadn't done some of those. I learned a lot from each one, but if I could do it again, I wouldn't do it like that. So I know you're busy, so I don't want to take any more of your time, but do you have any other stories relevant to who you are or just crazy stories to share no, before we kind of close? 
exhausted all my stories. You left me without any stories. Okay. Any advice to give to close? I'm very proud to be in California. This is my place in the world. I have my dearest friends here. I feel at home. I understand what's going on in this valley. Uh, I feel like I'm a part of it. I'm excited by it. And because of that, I'm very proud that my kids are Californians and they are growing up here. But sometimes I worry about the pressure that we put on them, on kids in this on Silicon Valley. And sometimes I wish that we could, that I could take it away. And I don't know how to just by being here. I think that there's a lot more pressure than they should have. I didn't have that pressure growing up. I wish I could do that. It feels unfair to me that they have to live in a place that puts so much pressure on kids that can't be just, just be kids. And if I could tell my kids or you or anyone listening, sort of as if I were talking to myself when I was your age, I would say two things. If you want to remember only two things is one, have fun because we only live once because it's very short and because you regret not having fun. Have fun. And second is everything's going to be okay. You know, I think we all worry more than, and especially here, more than we have upon everything's going to be okay. Okay. Thank you, William. On the next episode of The One Hour Intern, I get to learn from Ronnie Lott. It's like dying. It's like, and I don't know what dying is, but man, it is, it's so painful. It hurts. You don't want to go outside. You don't want to see anybody. You don't want to talk to anybody. You, you want to stay in the house. I've always had those feelings when I've lost games when I was little, you know, when I was in Little League. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks.